Welcome, everybody. Um, so glad that you're here. Really fun to be with you. Um, if you brought your Bibles, we use those each and every week. Uh, pull it out. If you don't have one, there's one tucked underneath the seat in front of you, close by. Feel free to go ahead and grab that one. And uh, when you have a Bible, a copy of the scriptures, open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we're working from today. And um, it is such a great chapter of the scriptures. We've been working through the book of John, and in chapter 11, we come to um, the seventh sign that John is going to unpack of Jesus. John's gospel is structured around seven big miracles that Jesus does, and he unpacks who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to as attached to each one of those miracles, because that's what Jesus was trying to do uh, through his miracles. And we're in chapter 11, and this seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. And um, it's an incredible, incredible chapter of, of uh, John. And in it is resurrection, okay? Lazarus is getting raised up to life, but also intense, intense, one of the most intense laments that Jesus himself even joins um, captured in the Gospels, where he comes alongside Mary and Mar Martha and weeps over the loss of Lazarus. So in this way, kind of the, the worship set that we let out with of the highs and highs, most high to God, and then the lows of lows, lamenting and crying out to God in our pain, in the brokenness that we still experience. That's what John chapter 11 is all about. And if you were here last week, um, Dave actually, um, oh, we good? Okay. All right. Well, test, 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 test. We good? Okay. If you are here last week, um, can you hear me? Is my noise coming out? You can hear me? Okay, thanks, Joy. So if you are here last week, um, Dave was unpacking all of, uh, really dove into this passage and took a first shot at it uh, in um, really unpacking the first six verses of the passage. And really, it's in these six verses that we find something really, really super fascinating that I have to tease it out a little bit for you so that you might go back and give it a listen if you haven't heard it yet. Because Lazarus' sisters, actually, they sent a messenger to Jesus, letting Jesus know that Lazarus was about to die. Okay? They sent a messenger to him, and the message that the messenger arrived with went like this. Jesus, the one you love, is ill. And, and we're uh, Pacific Northwesterners here, so we know how to read between the lines. What they're really asking is, Hey, Jesus, can you please come and heal our brother? That's really the request, okay? So if you're new to the Pacific Northwest, just a heads up. People here don't necessarily ask you directly for the things they want from you. You got to read between the lines a little bit, but that's okay because if you learn that skill, it might even help you read your Bible, okay? So, uh, and so Dave showed us uh, this message that came to Jesus and how in verses 5 and 6, John highlights how Jesus loved this family so much that when he received a message that Lazarus was sick and likely on his deathbed and a request to come and heal him, he loved them so much that he did nothing. That he didn't act at all. He just waited for him to die. He didn't intervene. He let him die. He didn't respond to their request he let death come into this family's life. He didn't do anything. Um, and so Dave brought together the themes of love, death, and glory to help us consider how God allows death and, and pain and suffering into the human experience, um, not just because he wants to glorify himself, um, but because wrapped up in God's glory is the good and satisfaction of humanity. So both of those things are really intertwined, and this is all really foreshadowing a time when Christ himself will cry out to God on his deathbed, and God will do nothing and even let Christ die. He won't act. He won't intervene because he will, again, prioritize his glory, which is our good, and letting Jesus Christ die on the cross. So Dave's sermon was all about how sometimes God loves people so much that he lets them suffer so that they might discover how he let himself suffer to, and die to extend life to them. And um, it's a big idea. It's a hard idea. 
And if it's an idea that rubs you the wrong way, that's very reasonable. Just go back and listen to last week's sermon, and we'd love to meet with you and unpack it more. That's, that's, uh, that's what we do around here. And, and so Jesus ignored this messenger. Lazarus died. And, and John makes it clear that it was Jesus' plan to raise him from the dead from the outset. This is why Jesus let him die. He says, I'm, I have a plan. Okay, we're going to let him die, and then we're going to raise him from the dead. Okay, and, and uh, in between uh, Jesus going down there uh, to actually raise Lazarus from the dead, John captures and records for us two conversations that he had. The first is with Jesus and his disciples before he goes down to where um, Lazarus and Mar- Mary and Martha lived. And the second is with, Mar- with Martha when he shows up on the scene there. And these are important because it's in these, converse, in these conversations that we actually discover uh, why Jesus orchestrated and engineered this whole thing. That, like, why, why are we playing this game, Jesus? In these two conversations, Jesus really explains why. Because it's, it's clear that he engineered this. He didn't just hear that Lazarus was dead, so he was, oh, I've got to go raise him from the dead. He let Lazarus die so that he could go and raise him from the dead. And it's in these conversations that we figure out exactly what Jesus was up to here. Because this is what John has really been trying to do all along in his gospel for us. Um, the miracles of Christ, they're not just for the sake of seeing the, the miracles of Christ done. They're, to, they're always done, and John highlights this more than any other gospel writers. We talked about this all, already. Like, some of you are like, yes, this is the seventh sign. We've touched on this. You know, but Taylor wasn't here. Okay? I'm sorry, Taylor, I promise. Um, no, uh, no, but uh, he's highlighting how through these signs, uh, Jesus was all about saying and proclaiming who he was and what he was up to in the world. And um, this is really important. Because these conversations provide the provision or the precision we need and the exactness we need in order to figure out who Jesus is and what he's all about. Not just for people who might be coming to consider Christianity and the Christian faith for the first time or after a long time away, but also for those of us who have been Christian for a while um, because we tend to forget some of these things. <laughs> um, it's not very like in vogue to say this, but Christianity is complicated. It's, it's difficult. This is a, a really strange book if you actually open it up and, and read. Like this is a strange book and, and the religion and, and the, 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 what, the path to God through Christ that it talks about is complicated and, and, and strange. And so we can actually tend to forget exactly what's going on here and, and how exactly life in Christ works. And so John's trying to help Christians because I don't think this is like a 20th century problem. John's writing this because it was a first century problem with Christians as well. And so uh, this is all to make clear who Jesus is, what he's up to. And in this passage here today, we have one of these famous I am statements of Christ that's meant to help us do this. When Christ cries out, he says it to Mary, but it feels like he's just shouting it to the earth, to the world. That happens a couple times in Mark where it's like, Jesus, who are you talking to, man? (laughs) But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. What exactly does that mean? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Like, like if, if we were to, to take a 30 seconds and turn to our neighbor and say, this is what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what would we say? I think sometimes we, we, we might struggle in that conversation. That's okay. We're in luck. Because Jesus let, da- let, let Lazarus die so that he could have these conversations and make it clear for us. Okay, he's orchestrated and engineered all of this so that his followers could have these conversations with him so that they could be made clear for us. So that, that's what we're going to do today. Um, but it's important for our life today. Um, primarily, I had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and I'm, I'm from Denver, Colorado. Um, woot woot. Uh, Go Buffaloes? Any Buffalo fans? Prime, prime time? Prime time? No? Prime time's over, baby. It's over. 
Okay. Um, but Chrissy and I were talking with a, a, another couple uh, here in the city of Seattle who have been in Seattle for a long time, and, and they asked us what we like about helping people consider Jesus in Seattle and uh, as like compared to Denver, and I kind of just went with my knee-jerk kind of reaction, and actually my own answer surprised me. Uh, for that, any of those, for, well, for those of you who know me, sometimes like my knee-jerk reactions can be like, whoa, that was, it surprises me too, okay? So like, I was, I was surprised by this answer, and I loved it too, and this is why community is important, because it kind of makes you process externally, but they said, what do you love about Seattle in, in compa- with, when you compare it to Denver? And I said, well, uh, in Seattle, people discover they're miserable, or they're miserable pretty quickly. <laughs> like, they, they discover they're miserable in life pretty quickly. It's really great. You see, and, <laughs> let me explain. In, in Denver, pe- it, the weather's great. The people in Denver are like actually kind people. Like, like it's sunny out. It's wonderful out. There's lots of things to do. It's easy to get around this city. I mean, it's, 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 oh, it's so wonderful. You can be happy in Denver for years before you realize that you're actually miserable. Maybe like three or four, maybe four years, okay? But not in Seattle. I think in Seattle, as, I, as we've done like ministry here now, I think it's just like the longest you can make it. It was like a year and a half, okay? It's like when you're going through that second winter and you're like, oh, this sucks, Oh, it's like so dark and dreary out and, and it's raining again and, and everybody's like up in on me and my space and the city and I don't want to go out because it's cold and I might get hit by a car, especially if I'm wearing all black. Like, like this city is rough. You can usually list out all these things as well. It's on top of just the city. You can list out the things that are difficult, that are creeping into your life, that are making it hard, your, your job, your, your lack of job, your finances, everything is so expensive here, uh, your relationships that you have that aren't satisfying, um, the, the relationships you don't have that, that you want to have. Um, so this like tends to creep in it's, like before a year and a half, like often, but by a year and a half for sure. And, and people are typically tempted to think, man, I should move to Denver so I can get a couple more years of happiness out. You know, so the beautiful thing of Seattle is that people find out that they're miserable a little bit quicker um, than most cities. And it's a weird thing to love about a city, but I love it because it makes people far more willing to consider alternative methods to navigate their lives. It makes them more willing to give Jesus a shot, like really, you know, like, like more than just like saying they believe in Jesus, like what does it actually look like to, to really believe in Jesus or if they aren't Christian to try it for the first time. Uh, so in this city that's just plagued by spiritual depression, the spiritual life that Jesus promises becomes this incredible glimmer of hope fairly quickly in people's lives. And, and, so, and so even if you've been in Seattle for a, a long time, did you know this? Did you know that Jesus came to, to bring resurrection and, and life? It's, it's the great promise of life in his name as, as we're about to see. And the question really becomes, are you experiencing it? And, and just be honest with yourself for a second. This is a safe place. This is a safe place. Christians will go into and out of experiencing life with Christ throughout the, the course of, the, of their lives. Are you experiencing it? Or would you say that, honestly, ah, I'm a little miserable? Or would you say, honestly, I'm, I'm really miserable? That's okay. That's why John wrote this book, to help miserable Christians, <laughs> to help people who are looking for new solutions in Christ and in the Christian faith so that they might experience the life that comes from it. That's why he wrote this book around this. So, um, there's just so many things that can sever that connection between resurrection and life it, that it tends to produce miserable Christians instead of joyful ones. And so we're going to get into those a little bit today. Uh, that's what these two conversations are going to help us with. And so um, we are going to start in verse 7 with this first conversation, all right? And through this first conversation, we hoped, I hope we can begin to really grasp what life with Christ means like more exactly more precisely, okay? So pick it up with me in verse seven, because it's really, if you wanna, if you wanna like really ask, like it's weird that Jesus is 
leaving Lazarus to die. We really want to ask why Jesus is doing this. Um, the, the disciples ask him that very question here, as we're going to see. So, verse 7. Then after that, that is, then after Jesus ignored the messenger, okay? Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now, his disciples say this, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and we're going there again? Why are we doing this, Jesus? Why would we go down there? Jesus responds, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And I bet his disciples really appreciated the abstract and cryptic answer, you know? Let's see here. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on our way to wake him up. Then then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And I want to do a little call out here. You can connect verse 15 to 8. Something's really interesting in the the book of John is happening here. Verse 8, they call him rabbi. This will be the last time in the book of John that they call him rabbi. And, and, and it's, most people think it's because after this miracle, the, the disciples really begin to process Jesus and consider Jesus as something bigger and deeper than a mere teacher. Okay, so this is the last time rabbi is going to be used and, and because this whole thing is all about, it says here in verse 15, I'm glad for you I wasn't there so that you may believe. Okay, so let's go to him. Um, And then all the way down in verse 41, Jesus says something very similar. I'm doing this so that that they may believe that you sent me. Okay, so this miracle is actually going to transform the disciples in their consideration of Jesus. Their minds are going to be renewed on this. Okay, so after this conversation, we have verse 16. Then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. So cynical. I love it. I'm, I'm, I, I tend towards cynicism, so I can really appreciate that. Hey, this, this guy Thomas, he's, he's, he's right there with me, you know? There's hope for me to grow beyond my cynicism. But, so, this is what's going on. Jesus says we're going to go down there, which is Bethany, which this, there's a, where we're going to see is pretty close to Jerusalem. This is where all the Jews were who were trying to kill Jesus. And uh, they ask him, why do you want to do that? He gives them this cryptic statement and then he says, we're going anyways. And they're like, great. This, this could be the end. This could be the very end for us. <sighs> why all this talk about day and night? That, that's the question, right? Like, why are we talking about day and night here? Jesus, you say it's like safe in the day, but not safe at night. Like we just had two accounts in just a couple pages leading up to this where they tried to stone you at midday, Jesus. Like it's not safe even in the day down there for you. What are we talking about here? Well, within this vague and abstract statement is exactly what Jesus is up to. So let's dive into this illustration here. He says, there's 12 hours in the day. Now there's no watches back then. There's no watch. They didn't have watches. No watches back then. So the ancient person, really how they kind of broke up the day was into the, the night and, and, and the day, the 24-hour day, 12 hours in the day and 12 hours at night. Um, and then just like there's no watches, there's no electricity back then. So darkness, the night, was characterized by darkness. Um, but the day was characterized by light. And, and, and what brought light to the day? The light of the world the sun. Any astronomy fans in here? Yeah. The sun. Jesus is talking about the sun. No astronomy fans. Oof. I must be doing really well. Okay. Anyways, the sun, the light of the world is the sun. It gives light to the day, which means that it provides people the opportunity, opportunities they need to move around from place to place, to go do their work, to, to pursue all the things they need to get done in order for their life to progress in the world. And when the light of the world goes away, it's dark. They can't. You can't go, you can't move around at night with no electricity. 
like you can during the day. You might stumble and fall. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus says something a bit strange in verse 10, a little bit out of what we don't expect here. He says this, but if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Okay, first statement, we're talking about the sun. Now we're talking about the light inside of us. What's going on here? We expect him to say, but if anyone walks in darkness, he might stumble because the light of the world isn't out. You've got to wait another 12 hours and it'll show up again. But no, he says it's because the light is not in them. Jesus has made this illustration about something else entirely. Something else entirely. And this is what he's saying. He's saying the real issue that's presenting someone from partaking in and experiencing light and life, so experiencing light to pursue life, is not externally what's going on around them, if the sun is up or not, if it's bright or if it's dark outside. This is what the disciples are afraid of. They're saying, hey, Jesus, it's real dark down there. There's some external circumstances, a lot of darkness going on down there. I don't know if we're going to be safe down there. But Jesus says the real thing to consider when evaluating danger is the internal condition of a person. Is there light in there or not? Hmm. Is the light of the world in there? Now, this would be complete and utter nonsense unless Jesus has already taught his disciples something about the light of the world. Unless, I don't know, maybe from chapter 8, verse 12, he said this. Let's throw it up on the screen for you. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light and life brought together. Light of life. Jesus is saying, hey guys, if I'm with you, you're fine, no matter what darkness you're in. So, so this previous I am statement kind of brings us light, darkness, life, which is really all a callback to the prologue of John's gospel. Um, if you read John's gospel, you'll read the first chapter and you'll be like, whoa, there's a lot of big, strange, abstract concepts in here. It almost feels philosophical, even beyond theological, to philosophy. And really, the rest of his gospel is Jesus providing the specifics of what these big abstract concepts are and even embodying them. And, and so this is really a callback to the first chapter. I mean, this is the last passage I'll show you from John here. The first chapter, which goes like this. In the beginning was the Word. This, this is a, a reference to the second person of Trinity, the Christ, Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, including the life of humans, humanity, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it, or your translation, a different translation might read, a darkness has not understood it, or the darkness has not uh, grasped it. Really, the, the verb there is the darkness has not mastered it, which kind of works on the intellectual and the physical levels. John's always doing that, like playing on several levels. The darkness could not master the light, couldn't understand it, couldn't overwhelm it. But, but verse four here, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And, and it might be easier to, uh, to understand what's going on there if it's translated, in him was life. And that life was the light for men. The light for men. And this was really just a callback to, to the sermon that, that Dave gave back in John chapter eight. The light for humanity. John means it in, in two ways. In, in one sense, uh, all, everything was created through Christ, but in the other sense, as we live our life in the world, we have the light of the world to illuminate the darkness. Uh, I think we just sang a song about that. Illuminate the darkness. This is what, this is what Jesus as the light of the world is meant to do, to, to illuminate the darkness in our lives. Remember the analogy that Jesus just used, walking around doing work when the light of the world is, to do it, the things that we can to, to discover life with Jesus. That Jesus is the instrument even, the, the tool to help us actually live life. 
so that, that we can have him, we can possess him, we can hold him in special ways that provides light in dark places, even full, abundant, and remarkable life. This is what John, the Gospel of John is really all about. Like, he's using the word life so many times throughout his work. Joy and satisfaction, no matter how dark it is outside. That's what Jesus came to do. Is it still dark and dangerous out? You better believe it. Are there still difficulties and hardship? Absolutely, those are everywhere. But the light of the world promises to deliver joy to his people in the midst of that darkness and death, which is all to really just ask the question, what's getting in the way of you experiencing life? What's really getting in the way? Jesus would say it's not the darkness around you, it's not your job, it's not your, your, your singleness, it's not your spouse, it's not your kids, it's not your apartment, it's not your friends, it's, it's not your sickness, it's not what people have done for you, it's not a dreary Seattle winter, it's not anything external. You have everything you need in me, Jesus said. It's you. What's getting in the way of experiencing life is you letting me be that life in, in, your, in your world. You're the problem. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. The light is not in him. You're the problem. Now, now God came in Christ to heal that very problem. The, the, the disciples are asking here, why on earth are you doing this, Jesus? Don't you see the dangers out there? Jesus says, it's only dangerous to go into danger without me. They're, they're worried about going to Judea. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about your location in this world if I am located within you. You don't have to stress about externals when I'm present internally because when that's the case, you can see in the dark. You can see in the dark. The other night, I was, family had all gone to bed, struggling to sleep. I was just on my phone, standing in the living room in the dark. Not a great picture. Depressing picture, okay? Happens to all of us, right? And all of a sudden, yikes! Whoa! Mango. Mango's my cat. Just rubs right by my leg. In the dark, it's a very, very, very scary thing. Cats can see in the dark, though. Cats can see in the dark. Humans cannot. And it's happened a couple times as, as we've had Mango that, that in, in the middle of the night in the dark, she'll either jump on the bed and I have no idea where it came from or, or she'll rub past my leg and it freaks me out. We can't see in the dark, but Mango can see in the dark. This is just a silly little illustration. This is what Christ came to be for the Christian, to give us eyes to see in the dark so that we don't bump into stuff and stumble over things. So, so this first conversation kind of primes us to start getting about light, darkness, and life so that when this statement hits in the second conversation, I am the resurrection and the life, we can really start jiving with it. We, we can understand that, okay, we're the problem. We're the problem. We need to figure out how exactly to situate Jesus within us. What does that mean? It's very strange to these people. We have kind of 2,000 years of Christian thought that are trying, that's been trying to help us conceive of that, but it's still very strange. Perhaps even you could say mystical for Christ to be united with us and to illuminate our world for us that we might experience life, okay, in the midst of darkness. Now, so Jesus is gonna go down to Judea then and he's gonna encounter Martha. He's going to encounter Martha. So, so let's read this. As he shows up, um, as he shows up to, to do this miracle. Verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So this is John highlighting, like, this guy was really actually dead. It's going to be difficult to live in a sealed, closed tomb for four days after being ill for a long time, this guy was really dead. We have no one like swooning, like faking dying and then coming back to life. At the end of the, the, the miracle, he comes out and his like face is wrapped. Like someone unwrapped this guy. He's suffocating again. He's gonna die again right away. You know, okay, so, so this guy's really dead. And this is in Bethany. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And this kind of unit is really funny. 
that's used, it's 15 Roman stadiums away. So like even back then they measured things in terms of like football fields, right? <laughs> like, I think it's really funny. So it's 15 Roman stadiums away, which is like twice as long as a football field-ish. So it's like 30 football fields away is Bethany to Jerusalem if you measure things in football fields. I think soccer pitches are close in size. Is that right, Scott? Scott, you guys? Yes, okay, good. Whew. Almost got in trouble there. Okay, but, okay. So many of the Jews, the Jews are the religious leaders that, that uh, um, John talks about, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So religious leaders uh, comforting people in times of death is like, uh, like the first rung of things that you're supposed to do. It's not like a super positive light of these religious leaders, but it's still like, okay, they're, they're still trying to execute kind of faithful ministry among the people as death is happening. Um, but they're there. Uh, John is, 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 is showing us, hey, they're there. The disciples' fears that they had, those are real fears. They're going to find out that Jesus is here and something could happen and we're going to see that, that it's going to lead to some stuff um, at the end of this, the, at the end of chapter 11, okay? Many of the Jews had, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house, um, it's a very, it's, uh, even today, it's still a very common uh, Jewish mourning practice to bury the body on the first day and then sit Shiva, which means seven days. Um, uh, so you bury the body on the first day and then you sit in your house for six days and people come and, and bring you food and, and comfort you in, in, in your loss. And, and, uh, and so this is what's happening here. Mary and Martha are sitting Shiva and uh, Martha runs out, and Mary hears that Jesus is there, and she's sitting there, and she's like, well, like the whole point of this whole sitting Shiva thing is that he comes to us anyway, so he's, he's coming. So she, I think that's actually what's going on. I don't think Mary's like, uh, Jesus. I think he's, she's just sitting Shiva. That's why this word seated is here. Um, but then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. All right, so we have to read between the lines a little bit. This is Martha saying, where were you, man? We sent the messenger. Where were you? Where were you? You left us in a hard spot. And then she continues on here. She says, yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha... Yeah. Now we know that he's planning on doing it now because from the very outset, but she doesn't know that. And so she responds like this. Um, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, which seems to contradict itself. We'll come back to that. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So Jesus shows up on the scene. Martha runs out to meet him. And what does she do? What does she do as she's going, like she's, in, she's processing this intense loss of her brother. She's at a really, really low spot. How long, how long till these tears are gone? What does she do? The light of the world shows up to Martha and she intellectualizes. Look at these verbs that she uses. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Then, then, then again, in verse 24, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus is like, why are we in our heads? Martha, I am the resurrection I am the life. You're talking about resurrection? That's, that's me. That's me. You're talking to the resurrection. You're talking to the life, Martha. It's me. I'm here. I'm the resurrection and the life that you're crying out for right now. It's standing right in front of you. I think she had missed the person and presence of Christ. I think she missed it. I think she missed the light of the world that's meant to bring life because she's leaning back on what she knows. She's grasping for, for something, something to help her continue believing in the low spot that she's in. 
I need something so that I can continue believing in God. She's trying to maintain her belief and her trust of Jesus, even though Jesus didn't show up for her. Even though Jesus let Lazarus die. She's experienced this incredible pain and loss, and in in order to stay connected, she's grasping for theological straws. I I know that you can still do whatever you want, Jesus. I know that the resurrection's coming out at the last day. She's given herself these things. We do this all the time as humans. It's only only natural. When, When people feel like God didn't show up for them, one response is to bolt and be like, God, like, how could you have let this happen? I'm out of here. I'm out of here. But there's an anxious response that looks just like this, to grasp for and lean on intellectualisms and, and theological answers of, of what God must be up to in these times of pain and in these times of hardship. We say things like, well, in, in, in Romans it says that God works all things for the good of, for the good of those who who love him, so I'm sure I'll be fine. That, that, that might be true, but it's not letting the light of the world give you life. It's an anxious response. And what it does is it, it sidesteps the opportunity to relate with Christ that he has been trying to engineer and orchestrate the whole time that you might discover life even at this point in your darkness. Later in the passage, Mary says the same thing to Jesus. Doesn't follow it up with an intellectual statement. And it's there that Jesus joins in with the lament. Jesus goes deep with Mary. Dave unpacked it last week how deep Jesus went. Jesus, Mary, where were you, Jesus? Jesus joins in. Yeah, death is awful. This is why lament is so, so, so important. Um, you may not have, have noticed this yet, but before the service starts, these past three or four weeks, what we've been doing is, is we've been closing the door and, and doors in here and putting on some music so that, that people can come in here. And it's actually a guided time of lament. That's for anybody who'd like to show up to service a few minutes early. And we have slides going up here that are kind of some guided questions of, of, of how we can bring our pains, bring our hardships, bring our difficulties, bring the, the darkness that we've experienced, that we are experiencing um, to God. And one of the steps, perhaps the most important one, is, is complaining to God. Complaining to God. We actually have some handouts here, too, that, that are kind of like a, a appendices for how to complain, how to lament, how to, how to engage God in your darkness. It's so, so, so important because actually lament is that to be the road that leads to life. Intellectually, that doesn't make sense to us. How can rolling up our sleeves and getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness instead of numbing out some other way, instead of just telling ourselves, don't worry, God still loves me, how how is that actually going to work? It's a mystery. But it's because God joins in it with us. His presence becomes overwhelming. The light of the world begins to extend light to us in the darkest of scenarios. Life for us comes through Christ and we can't get it without engaging his person. It's very similar to your friend with a boat. If you have a boat, you need to to ask yourself a hard question. Do I really have any friends or do they just want my boat? No, I'm just kidding. kidding. But it is, like, like you don't know how to drive that boat. You're completely dependent upon your friend with a boat to experience South Lake Union or Lake Washington this summer, aren't you? That life, that joy, that, that, that abundance. I love having friends with the boats. It, it's, it's the same thing with Christ. Life in Christ comes through connection with him. You don't know how to orchestrate life on your own. Only through being connected to him are you actually going to be able to experience it. Okay.
Let's look at resurrection and life. What's really unusual about Jesus smashing these nouns together is resurrection is future-oriented and life is present-oriented. Um, future-oriented and present-oriented. Uh, Martha intellectually ascends to the future that's coming. Yes, I know he's going to be raised from the dead one day. That's all, I know that's coming, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's smashing both of these things together. That, that future resurrection through him, in some senses, is to be a present reality that's experienced now. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to smash these together. Martha, what you hold as a future hope, I, tell, I say to you, is a, a, a potential present reality if you're connected to me, if you believe in me. That is, when, when belief is placed in the person of Jesus, Jesus becomes both the promise of God's future pr- provision and the, the provision of that life now in our lives. He promises a future heavenly body, but then that reality washes back into the presence as we are drawn into relationship with him. That resurrection life can manifest now as joyful, abundant life. That's what he's saying. He's saying that theology you have that prioritizes resurrection one day, that's me. And and more so, that life you're hoping will be delivered to him now, we can deliver that to him, or or, or that you're hoping will be delivered to him then, we can deliver that to him now. I have authority over it. Let's go get some of that now. Let's go raise your brother from the dead. Because we shouldn't get confused here. This isn't Lazarus fully getting that future resurrection life. He died again, and he's still waiting for it. It's that resurrection life washing back into the presence and giving life to his dead bones again. I am the resurrection, Jesus says, and I'm here now to give life. And it's no different for you and me. It's no different. Sure, we're, we're not dead yet, but darkness comes in various forms. Death is all the way at the bottom here. Jesus says, I'm here now to give life. Future resurrection life can be in our lives now in so much as we participate with the presence and the will of God. So we can't just take any... It's, the, 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 the presence of Christ isn't a magic bullet to cure all darkness, I guess is what I will say. We just saw that Jesus let Lazarus go through life-threatening illness all the way to the grave. God still will let us go through darkness in order to bring us to places where his life can be abundant and expressed. Okay, so this isn't to say uh, if you're experiencing darkness in your life, you need to trust Jesus because if you, if you trust Jesus, you'll get his presence and then he'll wipe out all darkness of, or from your life. No, no, no. Darkness is still present, but he's present there with you in it. He is there with you. Um, like Lazarus, yeah. Okay, so, so while resurrection, this is a lot, guys. This is a lot. I mean, if you're still tracking, congratulate yourself. If you're not tracking, that's okay. These are big concepts. These are big theological teaching concepts that are coming together and crashing together. And I realize that other than cats and boats, I haven't given you much practical application, okay? We're going to get there, okay? We're going to get there. Uh, Don't worry. So, while resurrection means that Jesus has authority over death, death, and you've probably heard that, it also means that he has authority over life. That the authority over death and authority over life are really two sides of the, of the same coin. It's not just that, that he, can, uh, he overcomes death to bring us back to the baseline. It actually has authority over life to take us into new places we've never been before. New joys and new abundance that we've never experienced before. It's a really crazy thing to say that, that through Jesus and knowing Jesus, he's going to bring you not just beyond death through the life of, of your future resurrected state, but it's going to wash back and it's going to bring you and give you energy and give you life even now in, in ways that you could only imagine possible. It's a completely crazy thing to say. It's a completely crazy thing to believe and trust. I understand it. I understand 
Martha was likewise confused. His disciples were likewise confused. But after the Spirit falls on Pentecost, it all really begins to become apparent. The Holy Spirit can come into the life of the disciples, renew their minds, to begin to entertain the reality that our future eternal state is not just being held and waiting for us, but it's meant to wash back into us today. And this actually becomes a little bit apparent in this uh, statement that Jesus says that seems to contradict itself. It's in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Now he says two things that don't make sense. The first one he says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Okay, so, so do people die? Do people live? What's going on, Jesus? Well, well look at what's different. Um, in the second line, he's saying, everyone, the, the person who lives and believes in him, this is the person that will never die. Now, he's not talking about immortality here. I don't think we've discovered any Christians like that yet. Uh, um, he's not talking about immortality here. He must be talking about something else, or he has no true followers. Which is it? I don't know. Okay. Um, but he's talking about those who believe and live um, because they've discovered access to this future resurrection life that can wash back and empower them. It's not just that this person is given more life, but they're given a life through the future resurrected state um, that washes back that's altogether different. This life is an altogether different life, and this life, that resurrection life, that continues. That is actually contiguous or continuous with the eternal life. That there's actually some some continuity between the life that washes back and gives us life today to accomplish and live and do all of our work here today through Christ that is going to have eternal results and ramifications and, and, and be true then. There's like a little bit of the, the, the melding of the two. It's a little bit mysterious what that's actually going to look like, but there's continuity between these realms. Did you know that that was Jesus' goal through you? to alter eternity by infusing you with that eternity life now? Or are you just trying to get through life, maintaining your belief in Jesus Christ and in your anxiety, telling yourself these intellectual things about who he is and what he might do one day to finally bring you to eternity? Very different. Are we living just to get through this life that we might get eternal life? Or are we engaging life now, asking Christ and, and leaning into Christ now that he might give us that life now, that we might live and work and do all these things that he would have for us that will change how eternity might look, that will shape it, that will give, it'll, it'll, it'll shape what's there, who's there. Resurrection life flowing backwards, yielding eternal fruit. This is what Jesus' plan is. This is what God's plan is. Did you know there's a life that you can live now that doesn't improve your present life only, but will actually have eternal ramifications? This is when following Jesus becomes a thrill. This is when you look out at the world, and, and if you leave with nothing else, just leave with this. This Partnering with Jesus and engaging and accessing this resurrection life, this is when you engage the world and you view it as a spiritual enchantment to engage, that God has something hidden for you around each and every corner, that, that there's life that can just pop up out of nowhere, that even as you process through the darkness, you can find hope in the midst of pain, that, that as you encounter people, you discover that God's at work in, in their lives in profound ways, like all of a sudden the world becomes far more than physical, it becomes completely spiritual as well. This is like the great hope of the resurrection, that the fact that, that this world, which God had to leave, yet is still spiritual, um, is, is getting infused with his life yet again, and there's different like pockets that emerge in this world that Jesus calls his kingdom. It's, 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 it's a thrill. It's so fun. 
It's amazing. This is, the, this is the hope that John is dangling like a carrot in front of us here in chapter 12. This is the hope that he wants us to dare to actually think, could, be, could that be true? Could we have that? I don't know. And, and, and you might be asking questions of like, well, how exactly does this work? Just hang on. Jesus makes it much more clear at the Last Supper, just in two chapters, Chapter four, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does that look like? How, how, how do I engage with Christ in, in these ways? You know, like, like that's coming, and this is the carrot that's really being dangled for us. Um, but there's great reason to hope. There's incredible reason to celebrate. God is, has made a way out of your misery. Praise the Lord. And that way out of your misery is gonna have eternal ramifications. Wow, that's magnificent. <laughs> Future resurrection, life just washing back and invigorating us and, and, and helping us engage this world in, in hopeful opportunity, still realizing and acknowledging the, the struggles that we exist in and, and we have to grapple with, but that there's a, a power through Christ to engage them in meaningful ways that reshape this world in the next. This is the very thing that's brought Christians hope in the dark for 2,000 years and why the faith keeps on getting faithfully passed down from one generation to the next. And the question that John is asking every, his generation that he's writing to and we ask of every generation subsequently is, is are you gonna be part of that generation? Are you open to entertaining the fact that this hope could be true? Are, are you interested in finding more? That's what Jesus is all about. That's why he's doing these signs. That's what he wants to inspire within our hearts. That's what John is trying to help us see, even in this resurrection miracle of Lazarus, a guy who's gonna get sick and die again. Poor guy had to do it twice. But it's amazing that it introduces to us the fact that this life isn't one to just suffer through, but it could be a thrill. Let's pray.